Hi, and welcome to Three Worlds Podcast, episode 20. This is a new episode 20. I went and listened to the old episode 20 and found that it was just a short ramble about Sacred Hoop magazine, which was really not very relevant and really not very exciting. So this new episode 20 is the second part of a talk given in London by the University of Oxford, uh, somebody called Dr. Ramble, who is going to talk about Tibetan vampire slaying traditions. And uh, the first part of the talk is on episode 18. So if you are coming to this directly, go back and listen to episode 18, and then you'll be able to hear the first part of the talk. Okay, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, since uh, the Tibetans have come into exile uh, in 1959, uh, really, to be out, yeah, sorry, it's, this is... Um, there is this um, feeling that quite a lot of, w of what went on in Tibet was really not presentable uh, to the international world. You know, things involving sacrifice, for instance. So much better show the outside world, uh, the out the outside world a rather cleaned-up, uh, respectable version of Buddhism and uh, pretend that the rest ever happened. Uh, and these categories of... Uh, rituals, uh, this kind of violence, this um, you know something that frankly does resemble black magic, um, is not a very good thing for lamas to be seen doing. So there has been a certain amount of missionary activity in this area from exile lamas who are now remissionizing the northern parts of Nepal, uh, introducing new forms of monasticism, and um, uh, looking askance on certain types of rituals. So most communities that used to perform animal sacrifice in the past no, now no longer do so. But um, rituals of this, store, uh, this sort, uh, these violent exorcistic rituals, are still going on. Now, this is not just uh, a modern phenomenon. Uh, in the early days of late tantrism, this is this particular, uh, particularly, what should we say, violent, picturesque form of Buddhism that developed in the ninth century, in the very early days, the kinds of rituals that were being done were extremely spectacular. Uh, for example, in one of the earliest, known as the Chatush Pita, uh, there was um, the possibility of invoking these uh, uh, divinities, these goddesses, to help you to achieve what you wanted to. And if they failed you, there were rituals for murdering them. Right? Um, and the later forms of the ritual, much more sweetness and light, less murder going on. So that's uh, possible. Why don't I think it works in this case? Because rituals of this sort involving the destruction of um, vampire-like demons are still very common, and the lamas still do them. So here, um, the main ritual for these priests, on their altar, there is precisely one of these effigies. And in this case, it's the masked dancers, who include the lama we've just seen, uh, prepare themselves to put out its lights, and here they're doing exactly that. Okay, So this is being killed, done systematically. In the course of the same ritual, uh, this is done in summer, another of these effigies, also painted with uh, yak blood, being held in a cleft stick, being destroyed in another way. Okay, This time with a ritual fire. Hold it over a fire, stoke up the fire, and the thing is uh, incinerated. There, not there anymore. And as if that weren't enough, you can also shoot them with bows and arrows. So here's a third one um, being pierced with uh, an arrow. So again, that doesn't quite work, I think. There must be something else going on. Let's look at the problem more generally. Um, 
when we look at the relationship between uh, rituals and society, it's actually f far easier to find anthropological literature in which it's uh, the priests who are hanging on to ritual and uh, the secular population who really don't want to have anything more to do with it or who are changing to other forms of uh, religiosity. Um, it's, this being said, there are a number of examples to the contrary which are particularly interesting. We have, for example, the case uh, described by Geertz of a failed ritual in Java, a funeral ritual in which the expectations of the laity were quite at odds with the expectations and performance of the priesthood. So the funeral in question was seen not to have worked. Um, Perhaps the nicest one that I know of in this category is um, the description by Mary Douglas um, of uh, the problem of Friday abstinence in the Catholic population in London. We're talking about the 1960s here. Uh, as she says, they adhere to it, they confess its breach uh, with contrition and take it seriously. On the other hand, it's not very highly regarded by the clergy. In their eyes, the avoidance of meat on Fridays is an empty ritual irrelevant to true religion. In this argument, the anti-ritualists are the clergy, and the ritualists, a type known patronizingly, as she says, as the bog Irish. Bog Irishism, she says, seems to be a highly magical, irrational, non-verbal culture, mainly found in London. And when she asks her clerical friends why uh, these new forms are considered to be superior, uh, she says she is answered by a tailhardist evolutionism, a reference to the what do you say, the proto-New Age Jesuit, uh, Taylor de Chardin, uh, Taylorist evolutionism, which assumes that a rational, verbally explicit personal commitment to God is self-evidently more evolved and better than its alleged uh, contrary formal ritualistic conformity. Have we got something like that here? Um, I think it's a little more subtle than that. Oops. In this book, Natural Symbols, Mary Douglas uh, develops the idea of a, I'm sure you know, uh, the idea of a consonance between social conformity and ritual via the work of um, Bernstein or Bernstein, and um, goes into the matter of how different speech codes uh, create for their speakers different orders of relevance and relation. There are two kinds of codes, according to Bernstein: the elaborated code and the restricted code. The elaborated code entails the speaker selecting from a wide range of uh, syntactic alternatives uh, and is a kind of speech that requires complex planning. The other kind of code, the restricted uh, code, involves uh, drawing from a much narrower range of syntactic alternatives, and these alternatives are more rigidly organized. She even proposes that ritual is a form of restricted code. So these codes, the restricted codes, are deeply enmeshed in the immediate social structure, uh, and utterances have a dual purpose. On the one hand, yes, they do convey information, but on the other hand, they express the social structure and embellish and reinforce it. So that's uh, her proposal for an area of conformity between ritual and language on the one hand and uh, the social order on the other. Uh, she also follows Bernstein in maintaining that these speech codes can be modified by changes in the social structure. Now, as a pertinent example, I think this is probably worth exploring, this particular line. Something is going on here uh, that entails a dissonance between the understanding on the part of the priest and the understanding on the part of the lay community. This priest is not an intellectual snob, that's for sure, but he knows something about the ritual that the others don't. And the something that he knows 
has something to do with the social order. That's the hypothesis. One form of restricted linguistic code, I suppose, could be kinship terminology. So I'm going to make a brief excursus into that and then come back to the ritual. I know this seems a little bit like pulp fiction. You know, you thought it was going in one direction and now it's going somewhere else. I'm sorry. Um, now, here I'm going to de um, depend very substantially on the pioneering work that was done by Nick Allen, mainly his studies in uh, um, uh, diachronic kinship terminology among the Sherpas, Man, 1976, although there are other articles besides. Um, and clearly there's not a great deal of time to go into all the evidence, uh, so it's going to be a very brief and um, uh, sadly unrepresentative um, summary. The terminology in question, and we're talking about Bodish terminology, that is to say, uh, generally speaking, Tibetan, uh, was prescriptive. That means that it pre the, built into the terminolo terminology is the presupposition that marriage uh, with a category of relatives is the ideal. And it is symmetrical in that it equates wives' relatives with husbands and matrilateral cross-cousins with patri patrilateral. I'm going to repeat that and I'm going to illustrate it. So um, it's prescriptive. It's symmetrical prescriptive. Symmetrical because it presupposed, in that it presupposed marriage with a category of relatives and symmetrical in that it equated wives' relatives with husbands and matrilateral cross-cousins with patril, patrilateral. That's me, Green. M is mother. Okay, let's go through this quickly. I'm sure most of you know this, but if you don't, let's have a little reminder. F for father, Z for sister, W for wife, WB, wife's brother, MB, mother's brother, so this is my maternal uncle, F said, father's sister, F said H, father's sister's husband. MBW, mother's brother's wife. Okay, they are the same in this system. Yeah? It's a system implying direct exchange, symmetrical prescriptive. This is also my wife's father, and that is also my wife's mother. So logically, if this system works, one would assume that there's only one term for each of these two categories. <coughs> and indeed, in the kinship terminology, Bodish, but certainly in much of the Himalayan region, and certainly in the area we're talking about, in Mustang, there is one term indeed, which uh, designates mother's brother, father's sister's husband, and wife's father, and this is Asham. And on the other side, uh, I'm going to modify this, but let's say in most um, Tibeto, uh, Tibetan communities in the Himalayas, with certain notable exceptions, uh, Ani is father's sister, mother's brother's wife, and wife's mother. Okay. The person I'm married to, then, is my mother's brother's daughter, but she's also my father's sister's daughter. Okay. There happens to be no primary term for that, at least not in Tibetan. But there are in Tibeto-Burman languages. We leave that discussion aside. It is interesting, but we haven't got the time. Now, <clears throat> uh, looking at a distillation of this, uh, that's me, this time I'm red, 
and my uh, father's sister and my mother's brother's wife are usually known as Annie. Okay. Now, as Nick suggests, in changing from a bilateral... What he's talking about is changes in prescriptive marriage terminologies. In changing from a bilateral prescriptive marriage rule to a negative marriage rule, that is to say, um, it's not built into the terminology who you can marry, but it is built in who you can't marry. Uh, people might or might not go through a period when they followed a unilateral marriage rule, that is to say, uh, you marry people on one side but not on the other. It's no longer symmetrical. He's talking mainly about the Sherpas, who don't have any prescriptive marriage rule. In fact, to marry your mother's brother's daughter or your father's sister's daughter is regarded as incest among the Sherpas, as indeed it is among Tibetans and in most of the populations of North India. And that's very significant. Um, What seems to be the case, even though the Sherpas don't have uh, a unilateral marriage rule is that the terminology has some important asymmetrical features. Okay, and let's take a look at some examples. Uh, leave the Sherpas on the side just for a second. We're going back to Mustang now. This symmetry has been lost. I say lost because one supposes that logically mother's brother's wife was once Annie. And in this case, an external term from a neighboring population has been brought in to designate mother's brother's wife. So it's no longer symmetrical. And in the case of the Sherpas, well, uh, actually in our case, we've just seen in this ritual mother's sister is Shru. And among the Sherpas, we see that mother's brother's daughter is also Shru. This... um, Okay, in a lot of patrilineal societies, you find that maternal cross-cousins are equated with relatives of superior levels and paternal cross-cousins equated with relatives of inferior ones. I can't draw a full diagram for this, unfortunately. So anyway, these equations are known as Omaha equations, as you probably know, where you have a term coming down from the older generation on the mother's side to designate uh, a cross-cousin. And the whole system sort of tilts around like that. The terminology uh, tilts anti-clockwise, if I can put it that way. Now, what evidence have we got for a shift uh, from um, symmetric to asymmetric in the population we're talking about in Mustang? The terminology is broadly um, symmetric, except for a few exceptions, as I just showed you. But also, you have a very clear preference for matrilateral cross-cousin marriage. Let me say, this is a, a very common saying. It's actually in Nepali, but much cited in the area. You don't need to cook uh, um, soup made out of dried radish heads, fermented radish heads, and you don't need to seduce your um, mother's brother's daughter. Okay? It's a pun on the word pakaunu, to cook, and pakaunu meaning to seduce. In other words, it goes without saying. You, know, you don't even have to um, you know, take her out for a drink. You know, she'll, she'll be your wife anyway. <laughs> And uh, an indigenous one here, also much cited. Meaning that in order to get a thumbnail full of snuff, Tibetans not snuff off the thumbnail, not off the wrist, uh, to get a thumbnail full of snuff, 
you have to ask 21 times. To get your mother's brother's daughter, you need only ask once. Okay? So this is a very clear popular presentation of preference uh, for marriage with um, matrilateral uh, cross-cousin. Um, the system that's implied by this structurally is uh, clan-based. Okay? And indeed, there are named clans uh, in this area where you have, because it's a, a patrilocal society, preferential matrilateral cross-cousin marriage, so you have the red clan, the women of the red clan, marry into the men of the green clan, and the yellow women marrying the red men. So there's a movement of women, so to speak, from left to right. Movement because, generally speaking, it's uh, patrilocal. Very interesting exceptions, but uh, we'll leave that aside for the time being. Um, okay, and this kind of marriage is actually the ideal form of marriage uh, in neighboring uh, populations, particularly uh, the population known as the Magar, which is where uh, Andasal has worked a lot, and where the mythology is based very much around this understanding of kinship relations. The terminology used here is different, obviously. It's a different language. So um, you have uh, classically the relationship between what they call the banja, which means the, from the woman's point of view, it's her mother's sister's Sorry, her father's sister's son, and the mighty, which doesn't designate an individual. It refers to the parental household of the wife. Okay? So this is... I keep losing the cursor. Okay, so that's the mighty. So it's a kind of general term referring to the women one marries over the generations... Uh, in this clan. It's a kind of marriage that's repeated over the generations, it's, and it entails an association between clans. Um, I marry the women from that group, but in return, uh, because they are the wife-giving category, I treat them with great deference, and if they need to borrow money, they'll borrow it from me. If they need their enemies beaten up, they'll turn to me to beat them up. And So, so I'm always in a state of uh, indebtedness uh, towards uh, the group that has given my father and my grandfather wives and has given me a wife and I hope will give my, my son a wife. That's the principle. Um, okay. Now, in the, the mythology of the, the Kammagar, particularly, which is where Andesal worked, uh, the classic uh, scenario is where the, the original shaman, Rampuransan, uh, meets the, the head of the witches, and they have a bit of a joking relationship, and, he, and they establish that they are uh, mighty and banja. And they're in a state of enmity, but it's also, um, uh, they're also marriage groups. Let's go back to this myth that we saw concerning the subjugation of the vampires, and we'll go back to the very earliest part of the myth, when the... Sorry. Yeah. 
when Shenrab, the hero, and the vampire meet on the narrow trail. The bit I skipped was this. When he's threatening to kill her, she says, if you don't kill or harm my relatives, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I shan't disobey your orders. I shan't go to the realm of the humans, and you don't go down to the realm of the demons. So said the vampire. Then Shenrab returned his dagger to its sheath and bestowed the blessing of the witness and said, listen to me, lovely girl who was uncared for. I don't mean it. I'm only kidding. I'm only joking. I shan't kill you. I shall not harm you. You are my mother's kin, and I am your tsao, your tsa. Your clan is Sheza, and mine is Shen. The Sheza and the Shen are Shu and Tsen. At this meeting of ours, how could there be killing or harming? The point here is that Shu and Tsen are not designating individuals within a particular uh, system. They're, design they're categorical terms. They're clearly referring to the clans as a whole. There are two other important things in this. The joking relationship. There is obligatory joking between members of such clans. You know, you have to joke, and it's usually sexual joking. The other very important thing over here is that um, uh, is the phenomenon of ritualized warfare uh, between the clans of wife-givers and wife-takers. And for an excellent work on this, I would refer you to um, the possibly still unpublished thesis of Philippe Ramirez on uh, ritualized warfare. Um, so uh, these groups do indeed intermarry, but, and the warfare is ritualized, but it's also real. I mean, they really do kill each other. So it's a legitimate form of killing that takes place between uh, these clans that legitimary, legitimately marry into one another according to the system that's implied by this terminology. Okay, so here we have uh, the Shu and the Tsen extended, as it were, uh, as marriageable entities. So the hero of the Bonpos is presenting himself as the ideal husband for uh, the vampire. Why is that awkward? <clears throat> it's awkward because marriage patterns are now changing very rapidly in this part of the world. Um, I tried to collect a few statistics. Even when I was there doing my initial fieldwork about 30 years ago, people were still speaking about marriage with the mother's brother's daughter as being the ideal form. Now you no longer hear these two adages cited, and uh, after a few inquiries, I was able to identify just three um, uh, cross-cousin marriages within the last 13 years with um, uh, actual cross-cousins, and with classificatory, a handful more, and people are very anxious about it. They even ask me, you know, is this incest? What do you think? I said, well, I don't know. So, you know because it's, it's perceived as an absolute category. It's either right or it's wrong. Um, I quote Nick, uh, 1976, if the terminology changed because of changes in surrounding marriage, what is the explanation for the latter? This is one of the major theoretical questions we should leave on one side. Okay, that was a few years ago. I don't think in the present case it's that complicated. There is certainly a certain amount of revulsion on the part of populations from the South who look at this as a form of incest, and it's true that um, Southern uh, populations who don't have uh, prescriptive marriage rules are moving into the area. It's also true that the Tibetans themselves, that is to say the people north of the border and in exile, regard this as 
uh, a form of incest. In this remote wasteland, um, where on earth are the locals, the people from Mustang, meeting Tibetans who might uh, give them such an idea? Okay, so I've made it look all very exotic and remote. But in fact, as soon as we climb out of uh, the little gorge where the Lama's village is situated, immediately they put on their mobile phones. Yeah, because this is the only place you can get reception, is, uh, is on the ridge. So, you know, the Lama, very delighted to, uh, to phone his, uh, his friends. Uh, you know, they're texting, uh, whatever. And uh, great reception up on the ridge. Not just up on the ridge, but also in the middle of the ritual. You know, he receives, a, uh, he receives a phone call while he's subjugating the vampire. Who is he in communication with? Um, we go to a street corner in Brooklyn, and there is most of the population from this area. Okay? Um, standing around, uh, work's finished, and they're just about to go and have a drink. And uh, there they are. Uh, about four of them are from the village itself. Others are from neighboring villages. Uh, there they are in a house watching a Tibetan film, uh, having a bit of a party. And it's not just the men. Uh, the women are there as well. Women, I was just telling David, make a lot more money than the men because they don't work in construction. They work in nails, as they put it, you know, the, um, nail care. So they earn a lot more money. And you have this entire community, which is a substantial part of the population, living in New York, and who are their immediate neighbors? They've been there for about 10 years. They can't speak a word of English. Um, they speak their own dialect. They speak Hindi because they're employed by Hindi-speaking uh, Hindi bosses who won't employ Mexican workers because Mexicans only speak Spanish. So these people who have traded in India will work for Indian bosses. Um, so, uh, and they will have a lot to do culturally with Tibetans. And the Tibetans, uh, they have um, New Year's parties together. Um, you know, this Mustang population has more and more to do with uh, the politics of the exiled community. And, of course, uh, they're imbibing the culture of uh, the, uh, the exiled Tibetan community, and that includes things like ideas of what constitutes incest. So what does constitute incest? Uh, incest is... Um, one cannot understate how how horribly this is regarded uh, in all of Mustang. However distantly related a person may be, if that person belongs to a clan into which you cannot marry, um, the village will be struck by horrible diseases, all the cattle will die, and so forth. The term, for instance, uh, for incest is this. It's pronounced me, and dip means pollution. So it's the pollution that comes from incest. It's not just the pollution that comes from incest, it's actually a wider, or rather it is pollution that comes from incest, but in, what is incest? It's a rather wider category than simply sexual relations with uh, certain individuals. Um, and without having to argue the case, I can just go for a dictionary definition, a Tibetan-Tibetan dictionary. i give you a translation here. Impurity from reciprocal killing or sexual relations between members of the same clan or close relations. In other words, you can kill the people whom you marry perfectly uh, legitimately, but as soon as you kill uh, people with whom sexual relations would constitute incest, then you're committing a sin that is tantamount also to incest and damaging the community. So this, I humbly submit, is something that only the Lama knows. He is conscious that in killing the vampire, he is not merely getting rid of a pest, he is also implicitly committing incest 
with somebody by reproducing an obsolete form of social relations. Thank you. So that was the second and concluding part of the talk by Dr. Ramble about vampire slaying in the Tibetan diaspora. Can't say that word. Um, which I hope you enjoyed. And uh, just a few shout outs. My email address is nick at sacredhoop.org. The magazine address is sacredhoop.org forward slash offer.html. The website for this and all of the objects that I sell, the gallery, is threeworlds.co.uk. And that's about all I have to say at this time. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and I'll speak to you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>